The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, the Asia Editor, coming to you from Hong Kong. This week, I'm joined by my colleagues here, Robin Mack and Pete Sweeney, who, like me, are trying to process the incredible turn of events this past week, which have left the place we call home getting squeezed by two warring giants, China and the United States. Breaking overnight was the conclusion by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. That decision could end decades of special treatment for this Asian financial hub, which has long been considered distinct from the People's Republic for the purposes of trade, travel, and other matters. Pompeo's declaration to the U.S. Congress follows a decision by Beijing days earlier to move forward with a controversial national security law for Hong Kong. It targets, among other things, subversion and anything deemed to be foreign interference. The six months of unrest across the city last year, which were only stopped by the outbreak of COVID-19, helped spark the draft law out of China's National People's Congress. The protests have resumed this week, with police firing tear gas and pepper pellets and arresting over 360 people on Wednesday alone. So that's where things stand. Robin, I guess, I mean, it's a lot to cover, but why don't we start with Pompeo and why it matters, like this U.S. diplomatic label on Hong Kong, why it matters so much. Yeah, Jeff, so you're right. Under the current U.S. law, Hong Kong is treated as a separate and distinct entity from mainland China. And a good example of that is that um, the U.S. tariffs don't apply to any Hong Kong exports, for example. So underpinning the Hong Kong special status is that, you know, Hong Kong enjoys some degree of autonomy from mainland China. And this is pretty much the one country, two systems framework, which basically allows Hong Kong to have a separate legal and political system from the rest of the country. So Pompeo's decision now opens up the possibility that the US government can simply just start removing some or all of the special privileges that Hong Kong enjoys. So it's not clear what that will entail. There's even talk of sanctions, but for many of the businesses, uh, the American companies that are operating in Hong Kong or doing business in Hong Kong, that's a lot of uncertainty and risk going forward. Yeah, Pete, there's a lot here. I mean, this is a law that, I mean, stretches back, I think, to 1992. There's a lot of provisions and special treatment that Hong Kong gets. You know, this also all obviously comes in the backdrop of like this trade war. How, I mean, how are you seeing this fit into the sort of the bigger diplomatic tension that's going on? Well, clearly, from the U.S. perspective, the trade war is, is back on with a vengeance in spirit, if not in terms of tariffs resuming or anything just yet. And the Hong Kong issue is just kind of played into the, the hands of people who've been waiting for an excuse like this. Pompeo had held back, you know, his certification report waiting for the National People's Congress to conclude just on the off chance they might do something like this. You know, he's going to use this as leverage to, well, he is not going to, but the administration and Congress can now use this as leverage to punish Chinese officials for a variety of wrongs they see via Hong Kong. Hong Kong is an important conduit, obviously, for mainland China, not just on the economic basis, but for you know individuals who are looking to invest overseas or keep hard currency. Chinese banks and brokerages set up offshore branches there to do hard currency business and expand abroad, taking advantage of a lot of these policy exceptions. 
and the fact that, that the United States treats them differently. Now, we don't know what the U.S. is going to do, but clearly they can aim at individual officials or individual state-owned enterprises that they don't like and t- target their assets or their activities in Hong Kong, You know, which could be really, really quite abrasive. In this case, the U.S. has de facto control of the, the dollar system. It's got some pretty heavy firepower it can bring to bear. But the risk is obviously that if the United States is sloppy, if the legislation is not crafted precisely or, or whatever, implemented poorly, you know, it'll hurt ordinary Hong Kong people. It'll hurt people who are ordinarily inclined to sympathize you know, with American goals like other sanctions have done elsewhere in the past. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, obviously a lot to kind of drill down on this show. I, but I want to pause a little bit and Robin, like hear from you on the idea that, I mean, what's amazing, the other part of the backdrop is not just the trade war, but it's that Hong Kong has been one of the best places in the world to cope with the virus. You know, we can count on, I think, one hand, maybe the number of deaths, um, the number of cases very low, people are out and about again, everyone wears masks. How does that juxtaposition work? Why is that? I mean, why is this all happening in a place that's you know, that has managed so well on, on so many fronts. I mean, I think the backdrop of COVID-19 is really interesting because it doesn't seem like the rest of the population in Hong Kong is actually giving any credit to the local government for success in containing COVID-19. So a lot of that really comes down to, you know, like the, the city has, you know, experience with the SARS pandemic. So then there is like heightened awareness when it comes to social distancing, wearing face masks and personal hygiene. And a lot of people voluntarily stayed at home as well, even if there wasn't a formal lockdown that we've seen in other countries. So then that has really been sort of the factors of Hong Kong's success. You know, and if anything, the, the people in Hong Kong now sort of see the government as using the pandemic as a means to silence the protests. So a lot of the protests and demonstrations we've seen, especially on Wednesday, because that there is a eight person limit uh, in public gatherings now, police are using that to stop people from gathering, even if they are just singing songs and chanting slogans, um, they're using these social distancing restrictions to stop a lot of the protests so yeah, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting situation i mean the, the tactics seem to be quite aggressive this time around more aggressive than than maybe from the police that we saw between june and december last year the other thing though is i think you're right that they are probably using this time to sort of be more aggressive but i also feel like the protests last year are really what set off beijing down this path of trying to impose this um, security law I think they probably would have proceeded with this virus or no virus because I think they were probably just irritated. But Pete, what, um, I mean, obviously the, the the big issue here, you know, this place is a financial center, right? And, that, and that's what makes Hong Kong thrive. And it's also why it's particularly important to China. You kind of uh, brought up some interesting issues in a column this morning, but, you know, talk us through what it is that, uh, that may be going through the minds of uh, some of the big banks, some of the big hedge funds that are situated here in Hong Kong. Well, I mean, the easy thing that the reassuring answer that they might, some might be telling themselves is that Beijing is going out there reassuring everyone that this implementation enforcement of these laws will be very narrow. You know, it's just going to go after these radical secessionists and terrorists, you know, these people on the streets who are advocating for independence, the overthrow of the government and building bombs. If you believe that narrative, then you might think that this is all like not your problem. In fact, you might welcome, you know, the cessation of the protests, you know, which certainly have been destabilizing, unpleasant, violent on occasion. 
that has been super inconvenient for people who are not political, especially foreign bankers who are, you know, just kind of here to do business. But, you know, there's, there's a couple problems with that way of thinking. One is that the protest movement started out as a broad-based resistance to a law that was going to propose extradition law that was going to allow people to be extradited to mainland China for crimes. And that prompted huge protests. And like what we saw towards the end of the movement, which was increasingly violent and kind of dominated by narrow radicals, it's important to remember at the beginning, you know, there were accountants, lawyers, bankers, everybody sort of quietly marching. There was absolutely no support for that because people don't trust the mainland court system. And that's what this was about in the first place. And that's what most of the demonstrators want, is to have their legal privileges protected and maybe even expanded a little bit, maybe be able to choose their own executive, right? And the other problem is, of course, if you look at the way that China defines national security and the way that it's described these protests, China, like the the foreign interference language that we see here in the law and also in the proposed legislation and in what state media is saying and and Chinese officials are saying, it was very much directly saying that like foreigners are setting off this unrest. You know, ordinarily Hong Kong people would never be unhappy with the, the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. It must be foreign agents paying them or manipulating them or lying to them. And that's similar to what we saw in 2015 when we had a stock market crash. And this is directly relevant to to what the financial industry might be thinking today, is that, you know, for, for China, for the mainland, national security includes economic and security and market performance, right? 2015, you know, Chinese authorities went after a lot of bankers, traders, investors for what they said was malicious short selling. Basically, you know, that they were trying to sabotage China's stock market performance at the time. And like that saw people who would never consider themselves to be political activists dragged off for tea, as they call it, and having people, you know, looking through their trading records and asking why you're shorting this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess so in the, broad... the immediate issue is not, is not as political. I think these guys are going to have less protection going forward. And I think it's naive to think that financial trading, whatever relationships would be exempt. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, the the fear of sort of broad sweeping language about subversion, which could easily be interpreted to mean something like beloved stocks or whatever. But um, I mean, Robin, you obviously been in Hong Kong a long time. How does this these developments, I guess, over the last seven days feel? Is it I mean, is this like just some I mean, there's obviously a lot of people saying this is like the official end of one country, two systems. Does this feel just another incremental step that people are upset right now? Does this feel somewhat different? for the way that, you know, life and business will be here? I mean, keep in mind that, you know, the Hong Kong government has always tried to enact some sort of national security legislation. So this happened, you know, even back in 2003, that was met with overwhelming public opposition um, and the government was forced to shelve it. But it's definitely different this time because I think a lot of Hong Kong people you know, it was just a matter of when there was some sort of national security bill, not if. But the way in which Beijing did it is really troubling because, you know, they've chosen, so to speak, the nuclear option, which is to bypass all the local legislative procedures in enacting, you know, a piece of law in Hong Kong. And that really is troubling because it shows that by sidelining the Hong Kong government, there's not much that the Hong Kong people can do, even if there are uh, legislative elections coming up in September. It really does show that Beijing, if it wants to do something, it will just go beyond you know, the government here. So I think that's really troubling. Um, and options, it does feel different this time. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, we go back to the same question, sort of what options do companies that are here 
people who are here working, like what options do they have in terms of if this place is the essential conduit of, of trade flows and capital into the mainland? Okay, so we can argue that this place maybe is less appealing to work and to live because of these new constraints and um, less freedom. But like, you know, China has obviously been pushing this greater Bay Area concept. They want to make Shenzhen and Shanghai financial centers. Singapore has been trying to capitalize to a certain degree. We've heard rumblings out of Taiwan. Like, are there any other realistic options? I put it out to both of you, like to the financial, the corporate worlds. I mean, I think sort of what's happening, which is this really gradual erosion of, you know, things like freedom of speech, freedom of press. I mean, I don't think it's going to be so sudden to the point where companies all of a sudden feel the need that they need to leave overnight. I think this will certainly affect future investment and decisions. You know, if a company wants to invest more in Hong Kong or expand their headcount in Hong Kong, this is something that they'll definitely have to think about. I think it's, you know, Singapore, you know, is not exactly a shining beacon of democracy and freedom of speech as well. Taiwan isn't like a global hub. I think companies will continue to be in Hong Kong to the extent that they have to. Pete, I'll give you the last word on this. Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Pete. There is a carrot that is being offered here by Beijing in addition to this kind of stick in the bill. I mean, they are pushing or at least repeating their plans to do all this capital account opening moves across the border, easing visa restrictions and everything to make it easier for people who work and live in Hong Kong to go to um, go to Guangdong province, the, the big economic hubs of Shenzhen, Guangzhou, you know, this so-called greater Bay Area. Right now, you know, you go across a customs border, it's a pain to get your salary in and out. There's all this kind of annoyance with that. They are trying to lower that and make, you know, the Shenzhen market you know, a bit more open and the Shenzhen economy a little bit easier to work in. But of course, part of that is an incentive to emigrate, right? Like the easier it is to be in Shenzhen, you know, the more like, you know, probing Beijing minded Hong Kongers might just move there. You know, the other thing is that like, we don't know whether any of these reforms are going to actually show up. It's quite difficult to partially open up a capital account. China's tried it in Shanghai and in an area called Shanghai outside Shenzhen, and that didn't work very well. But I'm just saying, like, China is aware that they need to kind of, like, modify policy in a positive way. They're trying to do it. It's going to be quite difficult. All right. Well, there's obviously going to be a lot more to explore on this topic, but I think it's a good place to leave it this week. Thanks to Pete and Robin for joining us. I uh, would also like to express our gratitude to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes or Spotify, and please do share your opinions with us about the show. And come back next week for another episode of The Views Room.